Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time, Jesus once again turned things up a notch and showed even more command over the laws of physics. While in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee, a storm came up out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere. And its winds were so severe that it even scared the professional seafarers, Peter and all the rest. Jesus was sleeping at the stern of the boat as water was pouring in from all over the place. And everyone ran to him and screamed, Save us, save us, because they interpreted his sleep as evidence that he didn't know about the danger. Meanwhile, Peter interpreted his sleep as evidence that he didn't care. So in the midst of his screams for help, he said, Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus opened his eyes, and while the storm was still raging, he said to them, Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? And he stood up, and by the word of his mouth, he rebuked the storm, and it stopped instantly. And he said, Where is your faith? Where is your confidence in me? And when they landed on shore, what might have been the cause of that storm ran up to meet him. In that community was a demonically possessed man who was so savage and so powerful that no one could subdue him. They had tried in the past, even with chains. But he would pull the chains apart, break the shackles, and run off naked to live in the tombs. And during the night, people would hear him screaming and wailing. All over his body were bruises and cuts where he had bashed himself against the rocks and stones and purposely cut himself. Well, when Jesus got out of the boat, this particular demoniac runs up to Jesus and immediately falls down on his knees, screaming, What have you to do with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? Jesus said, What is your name? And the demoniac said, My name is Legion, for we are many. Please, I beg you, do not cast us out of this place, but instead cast us out into that herd of hogs over there grazing in the field. Jesus said, Be gone. And immediately the man collapsed, 2,000 hogs over in the field went berserk and stampeded off a cliff and died. Then the whole town came out to see what was going on, and when they saw the guy who had been possessed just sitting there, Jesus' feet calmly and intelligently, and after they heard the testimony from the herders who were in charge of the hogs, it freaked them out. All of this was just way too spooky for them. So they begged Jesus to leave. And strangely enough, he did, without a single word, which just goes to show you, folks, the incredible power of humanity's free will. A killer storm couldn't make Jesus get back in that boat. 6,000 demons couldn't make Jesus get back in that boat. But the lack of faith could. So he got back in the boat and crossed the sea, and when he came to the other side, a temple official named Jairus met Jesus and asked him to come to heal his 12-year-old daughter who was dying. Jesus agreed, and as they were on their way, a woman from the crowds, who was probably a Gentile, came up behind Jesus to touch the hem of his garment, because she had been inflicted with an issue of blood for twelve years. And when she touched him, she was immediately healed, and that was what she was hoping for. That was her plan. But Jesus wanted what happened to be known. So he called her out and said, Who was it that just touched me? And after asking a few times, she finally came up and confessed it. But then Jesus did a strange thing. He called her daughter. He said, Daughter, your faith has restored you to health. She just got adopted, folks. She wasn't just saved from her illness. She was saved from her sins. But then after this, somebody from Jairus' house walked up and said, It's too late. Don't trouble Jesus any further. Your daughter is dead. But Jesus said, Don't be alarmed by this news. Have faith. So they went up to Jairus' house and walked in. And, of course, everybody there was already in the process of having a wake. The mourners were there. Funeral instruments were being played. But Jesus told them, Get out of here. She's not dead. Of course, they all mocked him because she was dead, physically dead. But Jesus runs them out of there and then takes the little girl by the hand and says, Little lamb, I tell you, arise. And she did, immediately, and started walking about the house, talking as though nothing had happened. 
Jesus told them, Get her something to eat. So then after that, Jesus and the disciples journeyed onward and came across two blind men. Jesus healed them. Then another mute demoniac was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. Then Jesus made his way into his hometown of Nazareth again, but nothing had changed, folks. They still rejected him. So he left, but then he had some compassion on all the people from all over the place who were needing healing and so forth. So Jesus told his disciples, they're all like poor sheep without a shepherd. So he charged the twelve apostles and sent them out to heal the sick, restore limbs, cast out demons, and do everything that Jesus had been doing, which is pretty impressive, folks. And he tells them to spread the gospel message along with all of this, but then he warns them that he's sending them out as sheep into a pack of wolves. He tells them to be wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. But with all the warnings, he offers the following encouragement. He tells them, there isn't a single sparrow that falls to the ground without my father's consent. And every single hair of your head is numbered. And Jesus sends them out, and that's where we left off last time, folks. Now, while all of this is going on, something else was transpiring simultaneously that we're fixing to have reported for us here. This next event is recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, Mark in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29, and Luke in Luke chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. And the first couple of verses of this are written like the headline to a newspaper. And the rest of the passage is like a newspaper article that makes sense out of the headline. But this here kind of looks weird because we're not aware of the background. This headline is written in such a way that it only means something to the people whose ears have already been buzzing about what went down. Because the first readers to these accounts were alive while this went down. It was secular news and a big scandal. It was so huge and so well known that Luke doesn't even bother to report the background. The investigative reporter, he didn't even think it was worth writing down, so he just gave a three-verse headline and moved on. But Matthew and Mark, after they gave their headline, they then quickly summarized the national scandal that was going on to their readers, who were probably already aware of what happened. But to us, of the 21st century, this isn't well-known gossip. For us, it's forgotten 2,000-year-old history, and nothing's been said about it in any of these narratives up until here. So the headline, while it fits perfectly for a first-century reader, it seems out of place to us. So let's skip the headline and come back to it after we've read the article. Then we'll come back to the headline. Starting in Matthew chapter 14, verse 3, and Mark chapter 6, verse 17, they begin the report with news that we already know that King Herod had arrested John the Baptist because of the scandal that came out concerning Herod's love affair with his brother's wife. Big scandal, almost like the Monica Lewinsky thing. And John the Baptist, back when his ministry was going on, he was crying out for all kinds of repentance. He'd reprove anything, even the king. He brought up boldly, loudly, and publicly this business with King Herod's love affair with Herodias, who was the wife of Herod's brother Philip. John said, hey, it's not lawful or right for you to have her. And that was a bold thing for somebody to do back then. It's bold today, but even more so then because Herod was not an elected president. He was a king. So King Herod finally had John arrested and put in prison for all of this and had him bound. But we find out here that Philip's wife, Herodias, was so mad at John for exposing her in all of this that she wanted him dead. She wanted him dead. Wasn't enough that he was bound and put in prison. She wanted him dead. But King Herod wouldn't kill him because Matthew reports that he was afraid of the people for they regarded John as a prophet. So arresting him when the attention faded from John and went to Jesus was kind of sneaky on the one hand, but somehow it was something he felt he could get away with. But to put him to death would have been going way too far, would have made him a martyr and caused a huge uproar. 
But then Mark reports that after John's arrest, John continued his ministry from behind bars, believe it or not. And guess who the listener of his message was? The king. And Mark reports that when the king heard John speak, he was much perplexed. And yet, he heard him gladly. And he went from looking at John as a nuisance to eventually realizing that he was a righteous and holy man. You know, it's amazing how God does things. Up until now, everybody's been wondering what's going to happen to poor John the Baptist. He prepared the way for the Lord and then got arrested for it. And Jesus hasn't done anything about it. But we find out here why. To get the gospel to the king. And apparently, John made some headway with the king because it says he heard him and was perplexed, but received it gladly. But meanwhile, Herodias still wants John put to death. So Mark reports that the king had to continually keep John safe under guard. So the guards weren't there to keep John in, they were there to keep Herodias out. Mark reports she wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod had kept John safe under guard. Isn't that something? You know, all this time we've been wondering, what about poor John? When's Jesus going to do something? He's been doing something. Jesus planned and prearranged all of this outside time before he came. But then we get to verse 6 in Matthew and verse 21 in Mark, where they report that King Herod's birthday had come around, and Herod gave a banquet for his nobles and the high military commanders and chief men of Galilee. And part of the festivities, which was common for a royal banquet, was a beautiful young woman would come out to dance before the king. His nobles and all the high military commanders and chief men were there to watch it. Well, guess who the young woman was that came out to dance? The daughter of Herodias. It was Herodias' daughter. And both Matthew and Mark report that her dancing pleased and fascinated Herod and his guests. So when it was over and everyone was still laughing and smiling, the king wrapped up in the revelry and excitement of the festivities, he said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you desire, and I will give it to you. Whatever you ask of me, even to the half of my kingdom... And both Matthew and Mark report that even though this was made in the heat of the moment, this promise was made with an oath, which was a big deal. It's not so much a big deal today because promises are broken just as fast as they're made. Even binding contracts can be broken if you have the right lawyer. But that's not the way things were back then. Even a scoundrel wouldn't make an oath unless he intended to keep it. To break an oath was unthinkable. So for the king to make an oath like this was a big deal. So Mark reports that immediately the girl left the room and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And her mother told her, The head of John the Baptist. So she rushed back instantly to the king and requested, I wish you to give me, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And then the king was deeply pained and grieved and exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and the guests who heard it, he immediately sent off one of the soldiers of his bodyguard and gave him orders to bring John's head. He went and had John beheaded in the prison, and then his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, so she took the platter with John's head on it and brought it to her mother and gave it to her. And when John's disciples learned of it, they came and took John's body and laid it in a tomb. And then they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard them, according to Matthew's report, Jesus withdrew from there privately in a boat to a solitary place. Now, folks, don't feel bad for John. Don't think poor John. He devoted his life to serving the Lord. He fulfilled his supernaturally appointed role in history. And this is how God repaid him. He got arrested before Jesus' ministry even took off, and then he got beheaded. John's beheading was prearranged as his blessing and reward. 
He was set free from prison in a better way. Not just the prison of those four walls, but the prison of this world. Remember what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, don't store up riches on the earth, but instead store up for yourselves riches in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, remember? So don't feel bad for John. While John's disciples are carrying his decapitated body off to a tomb, what's John doing? He's hobnobbing with the likes of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Daniel, Isaiah, David, and on down the list. And you just know John was the center of attention. Because unlike Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Daniel, and everybody else, John actually knew Jesus personally. He was the one who prepared his way. Remember, Jesus said, no man born of woman is greater than John. So while John's disciples are carrying off John's body to a tomb, John himself is personally being honored by the greatest and most famous men of biblical faith that ever lived. John's not disappointed. And Jesus himself, in about a year or so, is going to rendezvous with John after he dies on the cross. Remember what Jesus said when he was in Jerusalem for the Passover in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29? He told the Pharisees that time is coming when all those who are in the tombs shall hear the voice of the Son of Man. And they who have practiced right shall come out to the resurrection of new life. Jesus was talking about when he would be in Hades for three days while his body would be sitting in that tomb, folks. A lot of confusion about where Jesus went for those three days because of a mistranslation in English that says he went to hell. But where he went was the same place that John just went. What you and I think of as hell, the original Greek calls Gehenna. Where Jesus went wasn't Gehenna. He went to Hades. And Hades has two compartments. One side is a place of torment where all the unfaithful dead go, but the other side isn't a place of torment. It's called paradise. It's where all the faithful dead went who died prior to Jesus' death on the cross. They escaped torment because they were faithful. But Jesus' blood hadn't been shed on the cross yet. That's why they couldn't go to heaven. Nobody could. But all that changes after he died and said, It's finished. Paid in full. And if that's new to you, go back and listen to our session on John chapter 5 because we explained it all there, spent a lot of time on it, with scripture and background to back it up. The point is, in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus told the Pharisees that time is coming when all those... That's a lot of people, from John the Baptist all the way back to Adam. The time is coming when all those who are in the tombs shall hear the voice of the Son of Man, and they who have practiced right shall come out to the resurrection of new life. So don't feel bad for John the Baptist. He completed his mission, and he completed it well. He got the entire nation of Israel all stirred up before Jesus came, and then he even got to witness to King Herod. He had done all that could possibly be done. His mission was complete. So God granted him his reward early. He got set free from prison and mortality. And while John's disciples are mourning him, he's being honored by the Bible's most famous heroes in person. And in just a year or so, Jesus himself will rendezvous with John and the others to take them into heaven. But now that we've covered all that, let's go back and read the headline that we skipped. Because what we just read was background that went on simultaneously with our last session. While Jesus called the storm, healed the demoniac, and raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, Herodias had successfully schemed to get John beheaded. So now we're brought up to date. So what's happening now? Here's the headline in Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, and Luke chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. 
King Herod heard the reports about Jesus and was informed of all that had been done and what was being done by Jesus. And Herod was thoroughly perplexed and troubled. What's he been hearing, folks? <laughs> Jesus is no longer just teaching and healing diseases anymore. It's now being reported that he's altering the weather. When Jesus called the storm, we were told about it from the perspective of those who were on the boat with him in the middle of the storm. Imagine what this looked like from the coastal regions all the way around it. You've got dark, billowing clouds on the horizon over the sea, strong gusts of wind, constant flashes of lightning, and continuing rumbles of thunder. And then suddenly, it stops. It doesn't dissipate, doesn't fizzle out. It stops instantly, like someone flipping a light switch. So Herod hears about this from multiple sources, and you can imagine the denial. Are you sure the storm didn't lose its muster and cease all by itself? No, sir. The storm didn't die. It was immediately silenced. We have hundreds of multiple witnesses who saw it happen. Really? Yes. And then he hears about the town that asked Jesus to leave because he had driven out 6,000 demons from a man who was believed to be unstoppable and incurable. This wasn't just any possessed man. He was well known throughout the entire nation to be the poster child of demonic possession. Reagan McNeil didn't have nothing on this guy. 6,000 demons were crammed into him and nobody could bind him. Everybody knew about this guy and they were terrified of him. Nobody had been able to cure him before. Nobody could bind him or even get close to him without probably getting seriously injured. He could break chains and shackles. Some biblical researchers believe he may have even been responsible for the storm that appeared over Jesus' boat. And if he was responsible for the storm, like some biblical researchers think he was, there may have been other supernatural things going on that frightened people enough to leave him alone. So the situation may have gotten to the point where it was almost like something you'd see in an old Dracula movie, where a stranger comes into town, walks into a tavern, and everybody's laughing and joking and having a good time. But for some reason, there's garlic hanging all over the doors, you know? What's going on? But then Jesus comes to town and just cures him. No advanced warning, no build-up, no procession to precede his arrival, no preparation to achieve this monumental task. He didn't ask for anybody's help, didn't ask for volunteers. He just shows up and cures him. An unstoppable, incurable, supernaturally charged demoniac. And then King Herod receives the report about Jesus instantly curing him with a single command. He's cured. Are you sure it's the same demoniac? Yes, it was him. The same guy who lived in the tombs. No. Yes. Are you sure he's cured? Yes, he's been living with his family and telling everybody what happened. He's a new man. And then later, Herod hears from the same town again about the strange occurrence of 2,000 hogs suddenly going berserk and running off a cliff. What was that all about? Sir, it was probably caused by the 6,000 demons who once possessed the demoniac of that region. Really? How do you know that? Because their sudden stampede started the moment the demoniac had been cured. And before they were cast out, the demons begged Jesus to send them into the hogs. What? Yes! Are you sure? Yes! And then a few days later, a temple ruler named Jairus walks in and the king says, I'm so sorry to hear about your daughter. She was taken far too young. Yes, she was, but God gave her back to us. What? Yes, she's fine. Jesus brought her back from the dead. Jairus, are you sure she wasn't just at the point of death and gravely ill? Sometimes that can happen, you know. No, sir, she was dead. At least from our standpoint, she was no longer in that body. She was gone. But Jesus brought her back. Really? Yes. Are you sure she's not a ghost? No, sir. She lives and breathes. She sleeps at night and eats food during the day. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself told us after he brought her back to get her something to eat. You're kidding. No. Well, this is impossible. 
This is nuts. This is just insane. This can't be happening. It's unreal. When he gives command to those who are beyond the grave, they hear him and obey. Death itself yields to his command. The forces of Satan's kingdom are terrified of him, even when they're together in mass. Six thousand of them banded together, combining all their satanic resources. And yet with all of that, they collectively screamed in terror at his presence. And they obeyed his command. And the weather! Who controls the weather? Who is this guy? Matthew reports that at first... Herod thought Jesus might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. And that's why the powers of performing miracles were at work in him. Mark reports the same thing, and that Herod's court was making the same assumption. But Mark also reports that others were arguing against that theory and were saying, no, it isn't John the Baptist raised from the dead, it's Elijah. They had come to that conclusion for a couple of interesting reasons. The Old Testament prophet Elijah was prophesied to literally come back from the dead and be a witness to Israel before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4. It actually says that in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. It never occurred to them that Jesus was the Lord himself because he wasn't bringing the great and terrible day of the Lord. He was bringing miracles of healing and a message of the forgiveness of sin. They didn't read the fine print. This was the Lord's first coming to refine the priesthood, prophesied Malachi chapter 3. Not to refine the world with wrath and judgment, prophesied Malachi chapter 4. So that's why some of these people are saying that Jesus is Elijah. But some people assume that John the Baptist was Elijah even before he had been arrested and put to death. But their biggest flaw in that theory was that John himself said, I am not the Christ and I am not Elijah. That's why Mark reports that while some believed this famous Jesus was Elijah... Others said, no, he's not Elijah, but a prophet, like one of the prophets from the Old Testament. But Herod said, no, he isn't a prophet like one of the prophets of the Old Testament, and he's not Elijah. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. According to Matthew and Mark, that was King Herod's official belief. But investigative reporter Luke points out that he changed his mind about that because it records that he said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I learned such things by hearsay? And he desired to see him because that would answer all of his questions. If it's John, he'll figure it out when he sees him face to face. If he's a prophet, if he's a sham, whatever. Interesting that when the king and everyone else hears all of these reports about the miracles, they believe the miracles, but nobody believes the testimony of the one performing those miracles. They come to all kinds of conclusions, all except the right conclusion, all but the one Jesus is telling them. I'm the one whom the Father sent. I'm the Son. I'm the one who Abraham and the prophets of old were waiting for and looking to see. I'm your Messiah. But that never even came up in all of the various theories and pondered conclusions in King Herod's court. But Herod's curious. He wants to meet this Jesus, and he'll get his wish just before Jesus is crucified. According to Matthew 14, verse 13, when Jesus heard of the news concerning John the Baptist, he withdrew privately in a boat to a solitary place, but he didn't go alone. According to Mark chapter 6, verse 30, and Luke chapter 9, verse 10, the twelve apostles came back and met Jesus, says they gathered together to him and told him about all they had done and all they had taught. But even so, Mark chapter 6, verse 31 says that many of them were continually coming and going and had no leisure, not even enough to eat. So Jesus told them, come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. So Jesus and the twelve apostles got together in a boat, according to Mark chapter 6, verse 32, and they went away to a solitary place by themselves. 
Luke chapter 9 verse 10 says it was near a town called Bethsaida. But Matthew chapter 14 verse 13 and Luke chapter 9 verse 11 reports that when the crowds heard about this, they followed Jesus on foot by land from the towns, which means while he was going across the sea, the people were running around to intercept him on the other side. And this is really incredible, folks. This next event is recorded by all four reporters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Matthew chapter 14, verses 14 to 21, Mark chapter 6, verses 32 to 44, Luke chapter 9, verses 11 to 17, and John chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. And like we always do, we're going to synchronize all four reports. Jesus went to the farther side of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd was following him because they had seen the signs and the miracles which he continually performed upon those who were sick. When the crowds saw Jesus and the apostles going in their boat and recognized who they were, they ran on foot from all the surrounding towns, and they got to Jesus' destination at the shore ahead of him before he landed. Matthew and Mark report that when Jesus landed and went ashore, he saw the great crowd waiting, and he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he welcomed them and talked to them about the kingdom of God and began to cure their sick back to health as he taught them many things. And this went on until the evening. Now at that time, Jesus walked up the mountainside and sat down there with his disciples. The feast of the Jews, the Passover, was approaching. And when the day began to decline and evening came, the disciples and twelve apostles said to him, This is a remote and barren place, desolate and isolated. The day is now over and the hour is late. So dismiss this crowd and send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and neighboring villages to find lodging and food for themselves. But then Jesus said, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And Jesus looked up, and seeing the vast multitude, he said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? But John's report points out that Jesus only said this to prove Philip, for he well knew what he was about to do. In other words, Jesus had already planned to feed this crowd, and he knew exactly how to do it. But he knew Philip was stressing out about this. So he asked Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not enough that everyone may receive even a little bit. Now folks, in our present economy, what Philip called 200 penny worth would be about $40 to us. So Philip's saying, 40 bucks to blow on bread for this crowd won't be enough to give everyone even a little bit. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there is a little boy here who has with him five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many people? And then the other disciples said, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. So that idea is out of the question. So then Peter says, well, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Good old Peter. Now, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't say that Peter asked that, but it's only Mark's report that records that question. And Mark was Peter's secretary. I love synchronizing these reports and paying attention to who reports what, because it's almost like you're there and you can see how these events were colored by each unique perspective. Obviously, Jesus and his disciples have with them a certain amount of cash on hand to support themselves sparingly, but they never intended on using those funds to feed anyone else, certainly not a crowd of this size. We'll find out here in a minute that it was over 5,000 people. So this starts off with the disciples and apostles asking Jesus to send them away. It's getting dark. The Passover's coming. They need to be getting reservations for lodging before all the rooms are taken, and they obviously need to get something to eat. But none of that can happen if all these people keep hanging around here. That's kind of the feel you get from their statement to Jesus. But Jesus says, no, don't send them away. You feed them. 
And with that statement, with that command, you know the disciples, without saying anything out loud, you know they were trying to figure out how. And of all who were there, Philip must have been the guy who was stressing out over it the most. Because he's the one that Jesus picked on. We don't know how much money they had, but judging from Philip's response, it must have been no more than 200 pennyworth. Because that's the number he was using for his math. 200 pennyworth, or $40 in our economy. So Philip's doing the math in his head. Okay, Jesus wants us to feed them, so let's see, $40, 5,000 people. This isn't going to work. And of course, Jesus knows that's what's going on in Philip's head. So Jesus asks him, hey, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? So Philip gets it off his chest and says, well, 40 bucks isn't enough. So after he says that, their dilemma is out in the open. So then Andrew, Peter's brother Andrew, tries to think creatively and says, well, there is this little boy here who has with him five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many people? And just like a typical brother would do, Peter disregards his brother's bright idea and says, well, shall we go and buy $40 worth of bread and give it to them to eat? You know, it's already been established that 40 bucks isn't enough to buy everyone bread. But after Andrew says, hey, what about these five barley loaves and two fish? Suddenly spending that 40 bucks sounds like a great idea. So when Andrew suggests the five barley loaves and two fish, his brother Peter sort of says, yeah, thanks, Andrew, great idea. So Jesus, you want us to go buy 40 bucks worth of bread and give it to them to eat? You don't pick up on that unless you synchronize these reports. But then after Peter's little retort, Jesus dismisses it and goes back to Andrew's suggestion and says, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had looked and knew, they said, Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, Bring them here and make all the people sit down. Now the ground was covered with thick green grass at the spot. So the men threw themselves down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus had them organized in ranks of hundreds and by fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and blessed them, and then broke the loaves and handed the pieces to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And he kept on giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And so also he did with the fish, as much as they wanted. And they all ate and were satisfied When they had all had enough, he said to his disciples, Now, go gather up the fragments and the broken pieces that are left over, so that nothing will be lost. So accordingly, they gathered them up, and they filled twelve baskets with fragments left over by those who had eaten from the five barley loaves and of the fish. And those who had eaten were about five thousand men. And Matthew goes even further to add that that number five thousand doesn't include the women and the children, so it was more than five thousand. This is a really neat little entry here with all kinds of meaty little nuggets to chew on. Jesus gave his disciples a command. He said, you feed them. Jesus gave his disciples a command in which the means to follow out that command wasn't known. With their own understanding, there was absolutely no way to follow out that command. But that's because they forgot Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And they also forgot Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. But leaning on their own understanding instead of the Lord, the answer wasn't there. But the answer was there. It was the five barley loaves and the two fish. Now, with our understanding, we would say, no, that's not the answer. But it was all there was. 
The 40 bucks wasn't the answer either, but all they had was the choice between the 40 bucks or the five barley loaves and the two fish. Peter's response was to take the route that might yield a little more success, the 40 bucks. I mean, it's not much, but it's more than the five barley loaves and the two fish. But notice Jesus' response. He saw those five barley loaves and two fish as the answer. Why? Because it was there. Spending the 40 bucks would imply that Jesus isn't providing for anything. Somebody would first have to go out and do some fancy financing to get everything you can out of that 40 bucks to feed the crowd. So we're talking about expenses, time, and effort to accomplish a goal that really can't be accomplished to begin with. But the food was already there. So Jesus thanked the Father for the barley loaves and the two fish, and that's important because that implies from Jesus' point of view, those five barley loaves and the two fish were predestined to be the answer to their problem. The food was there. That's Jesus' perspective. We don't see it that way because we're waiting for the miracle to happen first. We want to see the five loaves and the two fish turn into what Jesus turned it into before we start seeing it as the answer to God's call. And I personally find that interesting because how many times... Have we felt God tug us in a direction to do something? We pray about it, and we know it's Him tugging us, and we know what it is that He wants us to do. But the question of how always comes up. But God would never ask us to do anything if He didn't also plan to provide the means to carry that order out. The problem is us. Jesus told His disciples to feed the crowd of 5,000. The command came straight from Jesus, so it would be Jesus who provides the means to carry that command out. But the disciples didn't see it that way. They started looking for their own means. Well, we've got 40 bucks. That was the first response to Jesus' command. Then Andrew mentioned the five barley loaves and the two fish, but he doubted that it would work. His very mention of it was actually more of a mention of futility. Well, here's five loaves and two fish. That's one loaf for a 1,000 people and one fish for 2,500. But Jesus said, go get it. So the disciples obeyed which is more than what a lot of us would probably do. Some of us might tell God to his face no, because we'd say, God, that's not enough. But sometimes you've got to look beyond the physical means and just be obedient before you can see what God's going to do. God is not the author of confusion, and he's certainly not the author of doubt. When he gives us a command, he will also provide the means to carry it out. But when we see the means he's provided, we turn it down because we say, no, that's not going to work. Like he's smart enough to do everything that he's done, but now he's suddenly stupid and doesn't know what he's talking about. What if the disciples had done that when Jesus said, bring me the five loaves and the two fish? What if they had said, no, you get it. I'm not making a fool out of myself picking up those measly five loaves and two fish like that's going to work. If they had said that to Jesus, we wouldn't have this miracle recorded here, folks. But fortunately for us, the disciples were obedient. So because they were obedient, they got to see what God did with those five barley loaves and the two fish. And something else is pretty neat. Before Jesus started passing out the food, he told his disciples to make the people sit down. Those are the words recorded for us, which is interesting. I'm sure nobody went out there and physically forced people to sit down, but those are the words that Jesus used, and it's preserved for us here in the text. Make them sit down. And then the very next verse, it tells us they all fell down on the ground, which was covered with thick green grass. Any of this sound familiar to you? Is it possible that the Holy Spirit was giving a hat tip to the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Pretty cool, huh? Let's look at some more neat little hints that the Holy Spirit dropped in here for us. After everyone was full, Jesus said, Pick up the fragments and the broken pieces left over, put them in baskets so that nothing may be lost. 
so that nothing may be lost. What were the broken pieces, folks? Bread and fish, right? What does bread always symbolize? Jesus hadn't said it yet, but coming up in John chapter 6, he'll get into another debate with the Pharisees, and he'll say, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And later, before Jesus is crucified, what we call the Last Supper, Jesus gives the twelve bread and says, Take this and eat. It's my body. Jesus is symbolized by bread. Bread also symbolizes something else. It symbolizes the Word of God. Most symbols in the Bible don't have double meanings, but I find it interesting that bread does because Jesus and the Word of God are inseparable. There's a mystic, supernatural tie between the Bible and Jesus himself. Jesus was the Word of God. Your Bible is the Word of God. In John chapter 1, John gave Jesus the title, The Word. In the Old Testament, in several places, it says, The heavens and the earth will pass away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Jesus endures forever, but God's living Word also endures forever. What else besides the bread? Fish. And what does fish symbolize throughout the Scripture? The Holy Spirit throughout the Bible seems to use fish as a symbol for those who are lost who need to be saved. Jesus told Peter, Hey, you guys, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. In one of Jesus' parables, he said that the kingdom of heaven was like a dragnet that was cast out into the sea to drag up all kinds of fish, both good and bad. The good fish were stored and preserved while the bad fish were thrown out. That was a kingdom parable. Well, here, Jesus is talking about gathering all the broken fish and all the bread so that nothing will be lost. The fish are us, folks, but with us is the word, the bread of life. The bread and the fish are together. In Jesus' first kingdom parable, the parable of the sower and the four soils, the seed that was planted was the word. When the word was planted into the soil, a crop was sown. But what kind of crop? In Jesus' second parable, the seed was grain, which grew into wheat, which makes bread. See how it all fits? In the first parable, the seed was the word, but the word and Jesus Christ are inseparable. Jesus is symbolized by bread. So in the second parable, the seed was grain, which grew into wheat, which makes bread. But in that parable, the wheat symbolized children of the kingdom. Ooh. So the broken bread symbolizes Jesus Christ, who is broken for us. The bread itself symbolizes the word of God, sown in the hearts of children of the kingdom, who are represented by the fish. Jesus said, gather it all up so that nothing will be lost. And how many baskets did it fill? Twelve. What did we learn earlier about the number 12? It symbolizes the coming kingdom. Fun stuff. Now, the aftermath of this miracle, which is a pretty public miracle, folks. I mean, 5,000 plus people took part in this. The aftermath of this miracle is recorded by Matthew in chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, Mark in chapter 6, verses 45 to 52, and John in chapter 6, verses 14 to 21. Matthew and Mark record that at once Jesus insisted and directed his disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Why? What's the urgency? John records it's because when the people saw the miracle that Jesus had performed, they began saying, Surely and beyond a doubt this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus knew that they meant to come up and seize him, that they might make him king. So he sends his disciples off and tells them, Go ahead without me. We'll meet up later. Get in the boat and go before me to the other side. 
So they did, and Jesus sent away the crowds, and after he had dismissed the multitudes, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was still there alone. Even Jesus knows the importance of setting aside some alone time to be with the Father. But remember how before the 5,000 were fed, the disciples told Jesus that it was getting late? How late do you suppose it is now? Because since then, 5,000 people had bread and fish passed out to them. They've all eaten it, and now the disciples are in their boat crossing the sea. Matthew and Mark record that by the time it was during the fourth night watch, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., they were in the middle of the lake. Mark reports that they were troubled and tormented in their rowing because the wind was against them. Well, guess what? The sea was getting rough and rising high because of a great and violent wind that was blowing, and the boat was being beaten and tossed by the waves. Now, folks, you know what they were thinking. Oh, no, here we go again. But at the same time, they were thinking, no, we've learned our lesson. Our faith is stronger than it was the last time this happened. Jesus knew about that storm then. He knows about this one here. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. Jesus is in control, right? Except there's only one problem. Jesus isn't with them. They left him behind on the shore, remember? Is he really in control? If he was really in control, and if he knows all things, then why did he send us out here alone, knowing that this storm was coming? No, don't look at it like that. Have some faith. Jesus did know, and he's not concerned. Yeah, but he's not here. And the wind's getting rough, and we can't row anymore. We're stuck out here. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, and the wind keeps working against us. Well, Mark reports that even though Jesus was still on land, alone in prayer, he saw what was happening. So he came to them, walking directly on the water. And this is peculiar. Mark reports that as he came to them walking directly on the water, he acted as if he meant to pass by them. You know, you're too slow. You guys keep rowing. I'll get there before you do. But even as he was acting as though he meant to pass by them, he was approaching the boat. And John reports that the disciples were terrified. Matthew and Mark report that they screamed out in terror and said, It's a ghost. Now, folks, why would they say that? See, this story is so familiar to us, you would think that they would assume it was Jesus, but these guys weren't familiar with all of our little Sunday school lessons. And I don't think the majestic paintings that we've seen of this event can do it justice. First off, you got to remember, the last time that they were caught in a storm like this, there was a demoniac waiting for them on the other side of the shore who called himself Legion. Remember? So they know they've sided with one who's against these dark forces, but now they're alone. And it's between 3 and 6 in the morning. So it's in the deepest, darkest part of night. And with a storm approaching, the clouds have covered any moonlight that might have been available. And this is long before electricity and city lights put a glow on the clouds. So it's pitch black. And they're out in the middle of the sea. The storm approached. And somebody's out there walking on the water. You know, the closest thing I can compare this to might be the old Twilight Zone. There's something on the wing of the plane, you know. Well, you're rowing this boat in pitch dark, the waves are picking up, and then suddenly, did I just see that? There's somebody out there. And in spite of Jesus' miraculous power that they're aware of, he really hasn't done anything theatrical like this. This is a first. So they weren't expecting this. They never made the connection. So yeah, they got scared, and with good reason. But instantly he spoke, hey, it's me, don't be afraid, be of good cheer. 
Now, folks, all of them were instantly relieved, but Peter got caught up in the excitement of all this and did something that only Matthew records. John didn't record this for whatever reason. Mark didn't record it, probably because it was too embarrassing to Peter. Luke didn't record it because he probably couldn't verify it because it happened on the boat. But Matthew recorded this for us as soon as Jesus said, Hey, don't be scared, it's me. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. (laughs) So Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. But when he perceived and felt the strong wind, he saw the waves, he became frightened, and as he began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And instantly Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And while holding him, he said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, folks, when I was a kid and heard about this story, I always got a little upset because I thought Peter did a pretty good job of showing some really strong faith. I didn't see anybody else volunteering to jump out of the boat to walk on the water. But as I've gotten older and gone through a few things and compared Scripture with Scripture, I figured out what was going on. Peter was caught up in what's called the joy of the Lord. He was so excited to be in the company of Jesus Christ. In the midst of the trials that were going on, Peter was excited and relieved because you've got this storm coming up. Peter's learned his lesson from last time. Jesus isn't going to fail us. My faith was lacking the last time, but I've learned my lesson. So while this storm begins building, they're getting a little scared because unlike the last time, Jesus isn't here. But Peter's holding on to his faith. Ah, Jesus will take care of us. Yeah, but he's not here. Doesn't matter. Jesus won't fail us. I learned my lesson last time. And then finally, they see Jesus walking on the water. So Peter's like, I told you, I told you. Didn't I tell you? Look at him. Look at that. Didn't I tell you? Hey, Jesus, since that's you, command me to come to you on the water. This is what Christians call a spiritual high. It's when you're so wrapped up in the knowledge of God's awesome providential care, you feel invincible. I mean, you really do. You feel like you can do anything. Like bullets can bounce off your chest. It's an awesome feeling. And it's in those moments that we take huge leaps of faith. I mean, huge Because we're not worried about anything. Ah, Jesus will take care of that. And that spiritual high remains consistent as long as you're keeping your eyes on the Lord. But the moment, and I mean almost to the millisecond, the moment you take your eyes off of the Lord and start looking at your circumstances, the spiritual high evaporates and anxieties and fears take over. And then you start to sink. So eventually you wind up like Peter did, screaming, Help, Lord, save me! And we brought this up before when Jesus was giving his famous Sermon on the Mount. One of the famous lines in that sermon was where Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What things was he talking about? What things shall be added? Your needs, your protection, your security, your peace, your well-being, all those things that he brought up prior to that line in the sermon. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And I mentioned then that it's kind of tricky because we can accidentally fall into the trap of trying to seek first the kingdom of God so that we can have all those things added to us. And if that's why we do it, then it won't work. Because if you seek the kingdom to get something good in this kingdom, it won't work. You can't really say you're seeking first the kingdom of God if you're seeking it to get something here in this kingdom. Another way of putting it, if you seek Jesus to walk on water, then it won't work. Because you'll be looking around you to see if you're really walking on water. And how well you're doing at it is what will sustain you instead of relying on him to sustain you. Looking at circumstances. Peter's eyes were fixed on Jesus before Jesus got there. His eyes were fixed on him before he stepped off that boat. He didn't just jump off. He first acknowledged Jesus' command structure. Said, since it's you, command me to come over there. You know, I'm not doing this without your approval. 
And that's always an essential thing to do. You don't make giant leaps of faith without getting Jesus' okay first. But Jesus said, yeah, come on. So Peter did, and as long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he walked on the water towards him. But the moment he looked around to see how awesome it was to be walking on water, and he saw the waves, and he felt the winds, he got scared. And suddenly those waves and those winds were bigger to him than Jesus was, and he sank. Help, Lord, save me. So that's why Jesus grabbed a hold of him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And both Jesus and Peter got into the boat, and when they got into the boat, the wind immediately ceased. And that that just gives me goosebumps every time I read something like that. I mean, you would expect a winding down or something. The wind immediately ceased. Then they that were in the ship were exceedingly amazed beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. In other words, they didn't remember the lessons that they had learned from the whole scenario with the five loaves and the two fish. You know, the whole point behind everything that Jesus shows you is so that you can build on it. If Jesus can feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread, then he can stop this storm and he can walk on water. They didn't do that. They were exceedingly amazed beyond measure and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. And they knelt and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And get this, immediately... The ship was at the land which they had been slowly making their way. This is a part of the story that most people don't remember. Everybody's focused on Jesus walking on water. Yeah, but did you know that once he got into the boat, the boat went from being in the middle of the lake to the shore with no trip in between? See, by walking on water and controlling the weather, that proves his command over the laws of physics. But folks, this last verse shows a space-time displacement. First they were here, then they were there. I mean, Jesus really is God. And then according to Matthew chapter 14, verses 34 to 36, and Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56, they went ashore at Gennesaret. As soon as they got out of the boat, the people of that place recognized him. What people? Folks, this is somewhere around 4.30 in the morning, all right? All these people ran about the whole countryside and began to carry around sick people on their sleeping mats to any place where they heard that Jesus was. And apparently even at 4.30 in the morning. And they begged him to let them merely touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were perfectly restored. And wherever he came into villages or cities or the country, they would lay the sick in the marketplaces and beg him that they might touch even the fringe of his outer garment. And as many as touched him were restored to health. Folks, this brings a whole new meaning to the phrase, a full-time ministry. Good grief. Wow. And that's where we're going to leave it, folks. Things are getting pretty exciting. Until next week, we're out of here. Take care.